the hotel was gone. It was hard to believe it when I first drove by. I actually missed it at first, but when I turned back and kept an eye on the addresses on the side of the road, I confirmed it was true. The hotel was gone. The one my family had stayed at for three summers, sat countless hours by the pool, had too many baskets of fried shrimp. It was completely gone. In its place was a vacancy, a void that left me, frankly, heartbroken. I didn't think I'd be so sad to lose a hotel, but the strange little rooms of the West Wind Inn were long gone. Only memories of big sleeps after beach days remained. Tourism is what brought me to Sanibel in the first place, and tourism is a huge part of Sanibel's industry in so many ways. Visitors like myself coming to Sanibel for a variety of reasons, isolation, seashell hunting, small town charm, etc. But that was not always the case. A century ago, Sanibel was also a farming community. A map at the museum shows the long tracts of land available for settlers at the time. At the turn of the century and the early years of American settlement on Sanibel, the island had no real village and a bit under 300 residents total. Tourists were not coming to this island. Its sole purpose was agriculture, a homesteading community like so many others across the state at that time. We are an agricultural state, we always have been, but much of our farming happens in the large flatlands in the middle of the state. Citrus on the coast, strawberries by the bay, sugar around Okeechobee, and more. Sanibel feels like a rare and unusual choice for a farming community, but alas, despite its position in the Gulf of Mexico, Sanibel was a spot for farms, for fruits and vegetables. The Sanibel Museum website says, quote, typical crops included tomatoes, peppers, eggplant, squash, cucumbers, and watermelon, end quote. They go on to say, quote, Sanibel grapefruit at one time won recognition at state fairs and would have cost $1.25 each in New York City or Boston during the winter. Sanibel tomatoes were also highly prized and featured on the menus of the top hotels in New York City at $1.50 each, end quote. Tomatoes actually were a huge part of agriculture here on Sanibel. But then a hurricane hit, 1926. The details of this hurricane are reminiscent to Hurricane Ian, which struck September of 2022, and their fallouts are quite similar. Our guest last week, Selena Kirsch, the board president of Sanibel Historical Museum and Village, she said this about the 1926 hurricane. In 1926, when the hurricane uh, hit, 1926 hurricane hit, it changed the complexion of the island mm. forever. Yeah. It wiped out the island is an agricultural place, mm. and it shifted it into a place of tourism mm. because it basically wiped out all of the topsoil right. where all the tomatoes. So the 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 agricultural focus was on veg on vegetables, mm. et cetera, that got that got exported. That was part of what the pa the packing house slash Bailey's. Bailey's ran what they called the packing house right. initially, and that was the, the distribution of vegetables and everything grown on the island that were very desirable. And actually, the tomatoes were desirable in the very fancy restaurants in New York, and mm. so the tomatoes would get shipped up by rail all the way to New York City and would be used in those restaurants. Right. But when that topsoil got eliminated during that hurricane, mm -hmm. which I don't know what the height, but let's just say it was six feet of water. Sure, sure. Salt water ruined the agriculture of the community. And then it started to slowly develop as a, um, as a vacation island. 
The hurricane of 1926 changed the entire shape of Sanibel's culture and industry. It was an agricultural island no more. Now everything was different, a destination for visitation rather than a small island covered in farms. Which has led people to ask a very important question. What comes after Ian? If the 1926 hurricane changed Sanibel from an agricultural island to a tourism island, what would happen with Hurricane Ian? Hurricane Ian hit Sanibel in late September of last year, a Category 5 hurricane that devastated the island and neighboring cities, including Fort Myers and Fort Myers Beach. The damage total is over $100 billion, and the deaths are over 150, both here in Florida and other states and countries hit by the storm. Ian's impacts are all over Sanibel. Closed businesses, stripped trees, smaller population, everything. But one thing hasn't changed. As I drove up and down Sanibel and its neighboring island of Captiva, people were still vacationing. As I visited, I stumbled upon people rambling along the beach, scooping shells into their hands, reading books and beach chairs, sitting on inflatables in the ocean like nothing had happened. The beach was still there, so why not enjoy it? Some hotels were still open, older patrons jogging across the street in swimwear to reach the Gulf of Mexico for a dip. I don't know what I expected. Perhaps I doubted that folks would return, but I was wrong. People rode bicycles. People sat in the water. The island was open for business. The island's beaches seemed as full as always. You can't keep people away from a beach chair on the coast with waves reaching the shore. We will always find a way to be there. And that's evident on Sanibel right now. And it wasn't just on the shores. I took a trip to visit one of my favorite spots on the island, the JN Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge, a beautiful plant and wildlife refuge that I took frequent bike rides through on my visits for the past couple years. As I coasted through the wildlife drive on this trip, enjoying the views, I was greeted with a familiar sight, families on bikes, enjoying the mangroves and blue skies. Others stopped at an observation deck with binoculars, looking out toward the tree line for movement, Florida fauna making summertime appearances. I was glad to see the refuge teeming with wildlife, human and otherwise. And I was curious how it had recovered. Because Sanibel is a tourist island, and ecotourism is a huge part of that industry. Without the refuge, without the wildlife drive, certainly there would be still things to see, but the Ding Darling Refuge, it's, it's a huge part of the environment here on Sanibel. So what would ecotourism be on Sanibel if the refuge was not available? But it was, somehow open for business. So I called my old friend Tony Westland, a ranger at Ding Darling, and we talked about the refuge and the return of Sanibel's birds. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This season is our fifth anniversary season, and this week we're taking a return to Ding Darling. We're talking about how the refuge survived the storm, how Florida's animals adapt in ways we may never truly understand, and how the ecosystem is evolving from the storm. If you missed last week, we talked about the historical village and how these old buildings survived the storm on Sanibel, as well as more context for Ian and Sanibel in the last year. That was our history episode. I would recommend going and checking it out. You don't need to have listened to it to listen to this episode, but they make sort of a, a, a nice little one and two, a little, a little pairing. So if you want to know more about the history and more about Sanibel at large, check out that episode. But if you want to dive right into this one, 
Maybe you've never heard from our guest this week, Tony Westland. Well, actually, we spoke to Tony at the end of 2021. It was just an amazing chat. I'll include a link to both last week's episode and the first episode with Tony Westland in the episode description. Go check those out. She was a delight to chat with the first time we got to meet and was just as much of a delight this time. Last time we met over the phone and this time we got to meet over Zoom, which means I got to see her office. And let me tell you, I absolutely nerded out. So without any further ado, let's meet Tony Westland. All right, wonderful. So uh, can you tell me uh, who you are and what you do? Yeah, so Tony Westland, I'm the Supervisory Refuge Ranger at the JN Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge. I work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. It's very exciting because the first time we spoke, we spoke over the phone. This time you're actually in uniform, which is very exciting for me. Yeah, in my dirty <laughs> office. No, it's not too bad. <laughs> as a as a lifelong parks fan, as a lifelong Fish and Wildlife and National Park Service fan, it's very fun to be speaking to someone who's actually wearing the uniform and wearing the logo as we're talking. Right? It's yeah. crazy. Yeah, uh, I think I could even put my ranger hat on if you can. Oh man, that would be over the <laughs> be over the moon. <laughs> no, that's okay. <laughs> uh, I get no, I get it. We start with a little catching up about the hurricane itself in those crazy months after the hurricane had come and gone. It was not the first hurricane that Tony had experienced while working for Ding Darling. She was actually working here during Hurricane Charlie, a Category 4 hurricane that hit Florida and planted over Orlando for some time in 2004. Hurricane Charlie was actually kind of the first real hurricane that I remember when I was a kid. Tony compares Charlie to Ian, but mostly states how much Charlie prepared the refuge for what Ian would be like. Charlie helped them prepare for Ian. I was here during Hurricane Charlie. I've been here 20 years at Ding Darling. So, you know, Charlie wasn't a direct hit, but was supposed to be and, and veered north. This was one that was supposed to be north and then hit us directly. So interesting you know we have hurricane plans and we prepare since charlie we execute them on every tropical storm if we are in the cone we are executing our plan thank goodness we have one we prepared um this one this was putting the plan to work and um it's still eight months of you know we had seven interns we had to evacuate and their housing is gone luckily we evacuated them and they're safe they all went home. We only knew them for a couple of weeks um, and they lost some of their stuff. You know, these things that you don't think of, you, you don't think you're going to be, you think you're going to be gone for a few days. You know, I'm, I remember sitting downstairs that's now gone um, with the interns and everyone's looking at me because I oversee them also, you know, like what's the worst case. And some of them had a lot of anxiety about it. They're not from here. And we all had anxiety about it. And they looked at me and said, so, what is the worst case scenario? And I remember saying, oh, Hurricane Charlie's the worst case scenario. We'll be back in a couple of days. You know, and I and we were actually gone for a month with Hurricane Charlie. I mean, we were closed. We were here cleaning up, but that was a month of shutdown. This is this was six months. So I kind of ate those words. <laughs> you kind of only go by, you know, historically what you have, your institutional knowledge, but with global climate change, sea level rise, storms getting stronger. You know, we heard the what the surge could be. You it, it's so important we all plan and take these things to heart and serious, seriously. We know lots of people that did not evacuate from this island. Um, you know, all of that. You just, you start to get complacent, right? Until something like this happens. And we 
never should be. And that's why we have plans. And luckily we didn't get complacent and we evacuated our people and as much equipment as we could. As far as the institution of the refuge, there is damage, that's for certain, but they are able to come back, recover and grow. Something we talked about a lot last week. These companies, organizations, institutions are finding ways to turn the recovery from Ian into an opportunity. And Ding Darling is no different. I think this community is gonna be stronger than ever. I was on Fort Myers Beach for the first time last weekend. I would not been out there the whole time. That is very hard to see, not very different, but like it's rebuilding. So now you're in this demolition phase. I'm walking the beach and the West Wind Inn is gone. In a surreal turn, Tony unprompted mentions West Wind Inn, the hotel I stayed at for the last three summers, the one we discussed up top. She just brought it up of her own volition. The was... landmarks are gone. You're driving down West Gulf and you're using your normal landmarks and, and then things aren't there. And in some instances, Tony has witnessed buildings not actually being gone, but instead just totally displaced from where they once were. She saw it firsthand when a kiosk that the refuge had put up went missing. I'll let her tell the story. It's a remarkable one. At Gulfside City Park, which is part of the city, we had a four-paneled kiosk about sea turtle nesting, shorebirds, trash, you know, don't leave your trash, shelling. And it, it's because we have a piece of the refuge there called the Perry Tract. It's our only beachfront and it's not developed. There's um, a resident alligator in there in a pond. It's, it's green space. We joke that it's the most expensive piece of fish and wildlife service like in the whole system because if you put a resort there you know but it is next to the city park and there's not a resort there it's refuge land it's federal land and we don't touch it and we don't visit it to close to the public it's just for nature and um but we put a kiosk there so people know that and they know who mrs perry was that donated it a woman donated the land she could have built on it or given it to her family and, and she donated to Fish and Wildlife Service. An amazing, she loved mollusks and shells and she was an ophthalmologist. Anyway, a really cool lady, uh, Louise Perry that did it. So it's the Perry track. Anyway, I go back, I had to get permission months later to go see if the kiosk was even there. And I walked and just talk about the pay station was gone. You know, that giant iron pay station. And I'm thinking the kiosk was by the pay station and the pay station is in here. The kiosk is gone, like, you know what I mean? And then the the walkouts are blown apart. They're gone. They're just like, I'm like, are you kidding me? Well, so I was like, just hurt that, you know, I'm here again, people have lost their homes and stuff. And I'm worried about a kiosk, but you, all these things that need to be accounted for. And so it wasn't, but a month later, I just checked it out as it's gone. I'm never going to see it again. I got a call from the public works and they found it a mile inland. It ripped up and floated. And they thought it was the city's because it's a kiosk and it wasn't on federal lands. But then they saw the Fish and Wildlife Service logo and called me and I was like, yeah, that, that's ours. Where is it? They're like, well, we have it at public works now. And I went there and it's in perfect condition. It did just like shear off you know, it's that recycled boards and it just, but it floated and it's in great condition. We're going to repair it and put it back. And I was like, where did you find this? And he was like, it's a mile inland. Like everything just blew out 
and they picked it up like those kind of things that is that, unbelievable that is that is stunning that's so wild that it just right? floated a mile yeah. but the refuge itself was on my mind how could it not be i visited it repeatedly and we talked about it on the show if you want to hear about that history like i said go check out that episode the history of the refuge and why it's called the jn ding darling national wildlife refuge it's a great story but i'll give you the gist of what this place is and why it's so vital like I said, its full name is the J.N. Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge, named after a very interesting man named J.N. Ding Darling. He was a cartoonist, an environmentalist, a really interesting guy. The refuge was established in 1945 as a protected bit of land for the ecosystem within, especially because it is home to a massive migratory bird population. In many ways, this refuge is a rookery, a safe space for both local and migratory birds. The whole refuge consists of, quote, 6,470 plus acres of mangrove forest, submerged seagrass beds, cordgrass marshes, and subtropical hardwood hammocks, end quote. Additionally, quote, approximately 2,620 acres of the refuge are designated by Congress as a federal wilderness area. End quote. Needless to say, this is a rich, abundant, multifaceted ecosystem that is home to birds Manatees, raccoons, bobcats, gators, lizards, everything you can imagine. This is the type of undeveloped conservation land that makes you feel very close to Florida's true nature. How could a hurricane as massive and destructive as Hurricane Ian affect a place as precious and delicate as Ding Darling? Well, according to Tony, as soon as they arrived, the wilderness made itself known. But we get back and the first thing I saw was a bobcat run across the parking lot. Everything was so gray and chalky and this like hurricane sludge was everywhere. Slippery, gross, ick. Um, and then like everything stripped of every leaf. So there's no green. Now you look out my office, well, it's hard to see, but there's lots of greenery. But a bobcat came running across and I was like, okay, we're going to be okay. Like, where the heck did this guy climb into a tree? And he wrote it out. And there was a family of raccoons right out front in our tree up the ramp. And three little raccoons kept coming down every day. We watched them and they got bigger and bigger and we'd be walking up the ramp. It was not a lot of food for them, but the strangler fig had came back quickly and they were eating the berries out of the figs and like dropping them on our heads and like you're talking to a raccoon because it was like what that keeps you sane and then we videoed them and put them on facebook and stuff so people could see the raccoons getting bigger but like we saw a gopher tortoise burrow at the shop we never thought we were going to see another tortoise again out here you know what i mean you wonder and a lot of them unfortunately the tortoise burrows were washed over Another animal we've talked about on this show, the gopher tortoise, one of my favorites. I love gopher tortoises, but the gopher tortoise is called the gopher tortoise because it burrows. It creates these underground caves with its feet that give it a place under the surface to live safely. When they abandon these burrows, other species use them, over 350 different species, which makes them what's called a keystone species. If the tortoise is gone, many things fall apart. But somehow, despite the flooding on the island, the tortoises are still here, making burrows in the post-hurricane soil. I mean, you can't live underground with 13 feet of water. It crested at 13.09 feet on Sanibel at Tarpon Bay Beach Road. That was the highest point on the island. Um, USGS was out here 
the next day checking every high water mark and they have the most amazing footage. Even if you go on Google Earth, you can go on Google Earth right now and see it before the storm. And then they took it again, I think October 3rd, a couple of days after, and you see right instantly how the things were there and then not there. Um, those, that kind of stuff. But we, the highest water was in the eight, late 1800s here at 14 feet. It's when they didn't name storms. So there was no name storm, but we have the date and we've always had a, a marking on the wall that said that. And so now I redid the sign. Here's one. Tony turns around in her office and literally grabs a marker, a big brown sign that denotes the height of a historic flood and the flood from Hurricane Ian. I redid these signs so people know the flood record. The other date listed on that sign needs to be discussed. It flooded up to 14 feet. It was the hurricane of 1873. Late September seems to be the time when Florida is most in the crosshairs of an Atlantic hurricane for the last century and a half or so. Hurricane Ian hit late September, so did the 1926 hurricane, and so did the 1873 hurricane. It struck on the morning of September 19th and roared across the state, but it wasn't the only one, and it didn't even really hit Sanibel that directly. Even more tropical storms would pummel the state for the next few weeks, leaving many of the coastal cities reeling. North Florida in particular found itself suffering immensely from the ruinous 1873 hurricane season. And though Ian and the 1926 storm hit Sanibel in late September, the one that really left a mark on Sanibel that year hit a few weeks later, on October 7th, 1873, a Category 3 hurricane. The map of its trajectory is a straight northeastern line from Sanibel up to Melbourne. And right there, in the historical record of the storm from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, it says the storm surge was 14 feet. Astounding! That was 150 years ago. And luckily, the island has not seen a storm surge that high since. But the storm surge from Ian was not that far off. That's why Tony's new sign is so significant, to put these two storms 150 years apart in parallel. Yeah, I wanted to go back and, I mean, we could put all the records, you know what I mean? But this was historically the year of the highest. And again, it says 14 feet. You know, you wonder how are they marking it? Now we have USGS out with surveys. Right, you have it know. down to 0 0.09. That's <laughs> a little bit more precise than 14 feet broad statement. Yeah, 0 0.09 so makes it a little more. It's pretty amazing that they were out here and doing all that, uh, capturing that data to see just where it came. And, and so, yeah, Tarpon Bay Beach, 13.09. Yeah, but Ding Darling, among all of its many features and assets, perhaps the one it is most noted for, the one that brings me personally the most joy, is its position as a rookery, a place for Florida's birds to settle, to migrate to and from, to develop their nests in security. When I've made bike rides through the preserve in the past, I've spent long stretches of time observing my favorite bird, the roseate spoonbill, as it nestles in the water, its gorgeous pink feathers shining in the sun. What would Ding Darling be without its birds? Where did they go? And did they come back? How did the storm affect them? What was the impact on the ecology of the the, the refuge and the birds and the animals? What, what was that like for, for how they responded to the hurricane? Obviously, they're Florida animals and they've been through hurricanes before. They see storms all the time. But, you know, what, what was it like for uh, uh, the impact from this particular hurricane? Yeah, so that's always the question. Like, where do the animals go? You know, how do they know? And 
I always say animals are smarter than us. And <laughs> that is the truth. They feel it. We know during Hurricane Charlie, so just taking a step back, we had sharks tagged with a partnership with Moat Marine. And it was trying to figure out what sharks were using Ding Darling and when they were coming in. And we were seeing data of sharks using this whole, all the way from Moat Marine down to Ding Darling into refuge waters. Well, little did we know that study was going to become a historic study in the fact that the sharks left Ding Darling eight hours prior to Charlie coming to the area. And the data showed it, right? They felt the pressure, the barometric pressure drops, the animals leave the area, they have a sense. And then Charlie goes through, again, it wasn't a direct hit, it wobbled and hit Punta Gorda, Port Charlotte, right after, and, and it was almost to eight hours, like clockwork, after Charlie left, the sharks came back into using refuge waters again. So again, that just shows you um, you know, that the animals know we didn't have any sharks. Everyone's like, we need to tag sharks <laughs> and watch them. Right. Well, that's not a lot of time. We have a plan bigger than that for a reason, but it's just this whole idea that it was documented of animals knowing, um, you know, that was coming. And that's the case. We know animals hunker down, they fly from the area. Um, and, right after we were seeing animals again. And there wasn't big, you know, questions about, you know, there's not dead animals laying everywhere. That's not how it works. But those are good questions because that's a valid question. No, we didn't see anything like that. And we started to see right away different animals. Like I mentioned, the bobcat, a fresh gopher tortoise burrow, a small one. So, you know, a small one made it and it was already making a burrow at the maintenance center. The family of raccoons were seeing birds. We just got done with nesting season with multiple birds. We've been posting all over. It happens at the web, the Wildlife Education Boardwalk, right here, just a third of a mile from me. You can walk and see them. Green herons, tricolored herons, antingas, yellow crowns. Um, the ospreys, you know, they that's a January thing. They have lots of ospreys and babies. So it, it goes on, right? The cycle continues and um, we're seeing great nesting birds. The cycle continues, but how? I mentioned last week a lot of the trees have had their leaves stripped from them and some of the trees have even died from the flooding from the storm surge. There's water over the soil. It seeps in, trees die. So do the birds even have places to nest? How are they doing this? So there's a lot less foliage on the, the, the island, but more than just that, like that top story, of leaves are just gone like that that obviously it's lower down there's a lot more but like i took the wildlife drive and where the mangroves are sort of below that first level all still green but that top level is yeah. still the barren branches right are you seeing that 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 like birds and stuff are are, are still using those areas they are unaffected by is there any change in that ecosystem so i can tell you when we came back there wasn't a leaf anywhere everything was stripped. It was gone. It was like, you're just thinking, oh my gosh, is any of this is going to, going to come back? Of course it is, but you're so much salt water just came over an Island. We know in the twenties, it wiped out the tomato agriculture on the Island. Told you. So you're just like, okay, now we don't have tomatoes and agriculture. Now we have buildings and they're like all ripped apart. You know what I mean? 
and then there's no leaves. Those sea grapes came back really quick, sea grapes. And even the mangroves, they did their job. They protected us. Like the structure was still there. The leaves are all gone. And as long as the flushing comes back with the mangroves. Okay, quick sidebar. We talked about this last summer, and this is extremely relevant to what we were talking about a minute ago. Remember I said the storm surge, it was it was nearly as high as the one from 1873. It was over 13 feet tall. Well, last summer in our two-part episodes with Dr. Lorray Simpson about the mangroves, we talked about how mangroves create a sort of buffer. They, they protect the land from the devastating impacts of waves because mangrove roots sort of stretch out in this little net and they stick up. And when a, when a wave hits it, it just breaks it up. It just splits up that sort of the physics of it it just it just splits up the the kinetic motion that's that's coming in from the movement of that wave the mangrove breaks it up they can literally change the outcome of how much a storm surge or big waves like this can affect the coasts and the mangroves are a crucial ally for us as hurricanes get more intense due to this climate emergency that we are living through the mangroves are literally our first line of defense and on sanibel they were just that they had some periods of regrowth themselves. It took a while for them to bud properly, but now they're bouncing back. There were some interesting sort of, she described that they were like budding on the, the trunks rather than sort of up the branches. That's just apparently something that mangroves do after hurricanes. I'll, I'll have to look more into that and to tell you more about that because it's very interesting. But there were certain areas where the mangroves did the best they could with, with what they were able to because the refuge had created what they call windows, little openings along the wildlife drive so you could see out into the ecosystem proper. So they would sort of cut the trees into these big lovely arches so that you can see from the tree line out into the water beyond. But with those windows gone, it meant that some of that damage was able to come through. I'll let Tony explain it a little more. So we did have washout and some of the spots taller than me, I could stand next to the road and kind of look under the road where we um, cut the trees, the mangroves, so you can see the, you know, the, we call them windows, right? We cut the mangroves, we have permit to do this, to cut the mangroves so you can see out into the water. Otherwise it will just be a big, you know, tunnel of green, which is good for the wildlife, but not so good for visitors and photographers and bird watchers. And um, so we cut them, but right where we cut them, I mean, it makes perfect sense. We had a lot of washout. You know, the mangroves were trimmed. They couldn't do their job, which was wind erosion. These trees really help us. They help the wildlife. They help our fishing industry, our tourism, the wildlife. Well, they help us during storms and you cut those away. And we, we spend a lot of time telling people this. It, you have to have a permit to even cut mangroves on the island because they do their job, which is protection of the island itself as we build every square inch. You know what I mean? Thank goodness for the wildlife refuge and SCCF and the conservation that's done here. Um, because we saw them hold us in place again. So those types of major storms where you're like yeah and where we did trim them we had washout and so we had to bring fill and riprap and there was some so not like complete washout like which was great like the causeway oh my gosh um but big holes where people couldn't bike or you couldn't drive it because they would drive off and you know it's not safe but now, by the time of my visit, the path is back and the refuge is walkable, bikeable, and drivable again. It took a hell of a lot of effort. There's still work to be done. 
boardwalks need rebuilding, parts of the main building need renovation, and so much more. I'll include a link to Ding's website so that you can see the projects that they're working on. I'm sure that they accept donations. There is a lot to be done for the refuge to be perfectly into working order, and frankly, everywhere on the island needs visitors right now. If you are near Sanibel, Ding, I'm sure, would love to see you pay them a visit. So these areas are bouncing back, and it's not a, a short process. It's a long-term process. Bringing the refuge back to strength is on the horizon, but only time will tell how it all will recover. Because it's going to recover, it's going to bounce back. Our nature has given us a path, a guideline on how to recover, on how to bounce back. Tony saw it firsthand. She says it's in the form of a small white flower. And then all of a sudden we are seeing this moon vine. It buds these beautiful white flowers and it's native but it is a species that comes in um, after disturbance. And so I'm looking at these beautiful vines and these white flowers and I'm like, what is that? And it's moon vine and it's native, but it will be the first to show that after disturbance. And I was like, that's really kind of cool. So you're seeing this kind of cool recovery right before your eyes. Sometimes called the moonflower or the moon vine, or sometimes referred to as the tropical white morning glory, which is a great name, though I prefer the moon vine. The moonflower is a simple, delicate, beautiful white flower with these soft white petals that forms sort of a parasol shape. According to an article from the Sanibel Captiva Conservation Foundation, this type of flower is one of a few that are appearing in yards around the island that just weren't there before. Another type of plant doing this exact same thing is the crested saltbrush, a lovely low green plant that usually appears on sand dunes but seems to be appearing in new spots due to Ian. Another flower, a wild flower, adorably named Sweet Scent, has started propagating outside of marshes and hammocks and is gathering the pollinators of Florida in new locations. So, the moonflower, the crested saltbrush, the sweet scent. These three plants are, are growing in places they weren't before. According to this article about these plants, quote, The good news is that these species are native, useful to wildlife, and can add value and diversity to your landscape. End quote. The moon vine that Tony is seeing in the refuge is an early indicator. Things are changing. Selena Kirsch said it last week in our episode, Sanibel is a living island. That's true in so many ways, including in the presence of these flowers. These changes, these new spots of pink and white and green, they don't have to be a curse. The earth has always adapted from disturbance. The flowers are a sign not just of healing, but perhaps of something brand new. But the more things change, the more they stay the same. While the flowers are evolving and the mangroves are growing back, while the facilities at the refuge are remodeled and the hiking trails are slowly built back, the birds of Ding Darling have found that a storm won't change their routine. No, Ding is still a home for them, and we're lucky that it always will be. Yeah, so we have um, a biotech, and she's great, and she's been doing bird surveys and all of our animal surveys, you know, post-storm. She did it before and after, and Avery's letting us know that bird populations are where they should be. So that's great. So if people are concerned about that, um, yeah. And the nesting season was very strong. Like I said, just a short hike from here. Photographers and bird lovers, it's amazing. We get, we get this opportunity to watch this beautiful thing happen. The courtship, the building of the nest, the eggs, 
you know, the, all of it, the changing of the guard, you know, as they're switching and then the babies being born. And right now the green herons, you know, I mean, it's a nest, like five feet over the boardwalk. You can see this whole magical thing happen. And now they're branching, you know, and they're getting stronger and then they'll fledge. And, and so, yeah, all those same concerns, like, is this going to happen? Are the animals going to be back? Like, yeah, they're right back in those same nests. You can't even believe those sticks are still there. <laughs> they added to it. And yeah, the resiliency of nature is inspiring. And um, living through now a category five storm, um, you know, if they can make it, we can make it. You know, we learn so much from nature every day. And to see the process happen again, it just, it gets you through the day. And it gets people excited. So if we can get them out here to come look at baby birds, who doesn't want to see baby birds? Little green herons, they're so fluffy and weird. They're so ugly, they're cute. Swallowtail kites, they came back from Costa Rica. They come through and they nest here. What a beautiful bird. And they're all, we've got like seven active nests on the island right now. So you're like, yeah, see, they're back. They, they flew in from Costa Rica. They, they're back to nest. Nothing can keep away the birds and nothing can keep away the bird watchers either. And we try to do updates. I go live, Ranger Tony, live from Ding Darling on Facebook. When we find something, there was a mangrove cuckoo, like the most sought after bird in all birders come and they want a mangrove cuckoo. And it was right out front in the tree. And I went live because there's not much, I mean, the vegetation's coming back, but it's limited. And the cuckoo, there's yellow-billed cuckoos that we get a lot of, but the mangrove cuckoo, only found in mangrove trees, is up there eating caterpillars out of the tree out here. That's a huge deal. I went live and was like, guys. <laughs> and let me tell you, yeah, all of a move. sudden, it was every morning at like seven o'clock. I get here, I'm the first one here, I'm going up the ramp and the cuckoo's there. So it got out once I put on Facebook, then the birders started coming. <laughs> Um, yes. Birders will always find you. Birders will always find that their specific interest. No yes. matter what, they will find you the way. You say rare bird alert and they are there. They will fly <laughs> in for a cuckoo. <laughs> I've never heard of the mangrove cuckoo. Cuckoo? The mangrove cuckoo? Look them up. They're beautiful. They're these soft little gray birds, but they're there in the mangrove trees that protected the island when Ian hit back like they never left. The cuckoo is still there for us to discover, still there to teach us a lesson. The birds don't mind it all too much. As long as there is green space and water, branch to build a nest on, a breeze to catch their wing, somewhere they can rest, eat, raise their young, and live in peace, that's all the birds are looking for. That's all I'm sure you're looking for too. Tony said it best. If they can make it, we can make it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. It means so much to me to get to tell the story of Sanibel in these two episodes, and I'm very much looking forward to paying them another visit later this year, catching up with my friends for a special holiday episode on Sanibel. I, I cannot wait for you to hear that. So I cannot wait to make it, honestly. I, I'm eager to see what the holiday season holds when I return to Sanibel in just a few months. But thank you. 
for listening. And thank you to Tony Westland of Ding Darling for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you to Selena Kirsch of the Sanibel Museum for taking the time to chat with me. You heard her voice in this episode too. Thank you to the people of Sanibel who were nothing but friendly and gracious and willing to chat with me a little bit about their experiences through the storm. Their stories inspired me a lot when I was preparing these episodes. So thank you to them. If you are near Sanibel, if you're looking for somewhere to stay, Sanibel is open for business and they could use your dollars right now. I'm not going to, I'm not going to beat around the bush. I'm going to stay at plain. The island needs your dollars right now. And if you're looking for somewhere to stay, I'm sure Sanibel would be more than accommodating to you. And you'd get to see all the beautiful new recoveries, all the beautiful new evolutions happening on Sanibel right now. You could write your chapter of a book that is just beginning to be written. So go pay Sanibel a visit and say hi to Tony or Selena if you see them. Thank you to Sanibel, and thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It means a lot to me, helps the show grow. It means more people can find the show. You can also do that on Instagram or Facebook at WFMPod. You can share my posts about the show on your social media, share them with a friend, or you can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. All the music used in this episode was originally composed. All right, folks, this episode came out on a Tuesday. Next week's episode is also going to come out on a Tuesday. This week, I I decided to push the episode from a Monday to a Tuesday in order to honor Monday, June 12th, which is the anniversary of the Pulse shooting here in Orlando. If you are following the show on Instagram, I posted some resources on how you can support Orlando, the gay community here in Orlando, and the survivors and the families of those who were lost at Pulse on the social media, and I'll include that in the episode description for this episode as well. I will also not be putting out an episode next Monday. Next week's episode will also be coming out on a Tuesday. That is to honor Juneteenth, which is an extremely important holiday in American history. It was the end of slavery in the United States. I'll be including some links and some posts on the social media so that you can learn more about Juneteenth. It's an extremely important event and and moment in American history, and I just wanted to give it some space on that day. So this week, next week, no new episodes on Monday. The episodes are going to be coming out on Tuesday just to honor these two important days that are uh, deserve their own space, and, and I'd like to dedicate some time to the social media uh, honoring those days and not focusing on the new episodes. So next week will be coming out on June 20th. The week after that will be coming out on the normal Monday, the 26th. All right, we are back at it next Tuesday with another brand new episode. We're going to be talking about a controversial governor in Florida's history, Francis P. Fleming, and his relationship with the myth of the lost cause. I'm very eager to talk about this chapter of Florida's history and how Florida's relationship to the Civil War and the Confederacy impacts our history to this very day. So I'm eager to dive into that story and tell you a little bit of what I've learned about Governor Fleming from over a century ago. All right, folks, that is it for me this week. I will be back at you next week. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, drink more water, and go Gator and muddy the water. How do we feel about see you later, alligator? Any any approval, disapproval? Let me know. Send me an email, wfmpod at gmail.com. See you later, alligator. I don't think I like it. 